The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the B-Side for episode 1640 of our national conversation about conversations about race. What do you mean, community policing? I'm Anna Holmes, here with a couple of very special guests. First off, I'm thrilled to introduce Wen Tu. She is the founder of I Am Asian American, a movement to mobilize Asian American millennial voters. Hi. Hi. Also joining us is Amy Choi of the Mashup Americans, a media company that explores race, culture, identity, and what makes us who we are. Hello. Welcome to you both. So on our last episode, we discussed the Mike Pence-Tim Kaine vice presidential debate and drilled out on the one thing they kind of sort of agreed on, the idea and the importance of community policing. As always, we invited listeners to weigh in with emails and voice memos at showaboutrace at gmail.com. So, as always, here's our producer, A.C. Valdez, with some of what you all had to say. Hey, Anna. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Hi. Hello. So I want to start off with this email from Monty in Indiana. We were talking specifically about Mike Pence and his community policing stance, and Monty had this to say. You asked in the last episode about Mike Pence's claim that so-called community policing works in the Hoosier state. My short answer is hell nah. A study done last Mm -hmm. year found that in Indianapolis, black people were three times more likely to be arrested than white counterparts, despite making up only one-fourth of the population. Additionally, months ago, an Indianapolis man was shot by police after calling them to report his wife being robbed at gunpoint. When you move beyond the capital, it gets even worse. In Carmel, a wealthy city just 30 minutes north of Naptown, black people are six times more likely to be arrested than whites. The rates in Johnson County, just south of Indianapolis, are also highly disproportional. I attend college in the county, and I can tell you firsthand the relationship is badly damaged. I've had police stop me a half a dozen times when I, a white driver, was with a car full of friends of color simply to ask if I was doing okay tonight. Indiana, like so many other states, has a mountain of work ahead of it to improve policing. I realize nationally, many people are just getting to know Mike Pence. But as a Hoosier, let me give you the spark notes. He's full of shit. From the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to the attempted denial of Syrian refugee families to his comments on policing... Pence is a spineless conservative ideologue who wraps his bigotry in the warm sentiments of his phony evangelicalism. Thanks for taking the time to read my message. Peace and love, Monty. Wow. Strong words from Monty. Yeah. Thank you, Monty. I mean, I guess Mont- Monty isn't saying anything that I'm particularly surprised by, but I'm glad that he could, you know, was kind of explicating the situation in Indiana. You're from Illinois, Amy. I correct? am from Illinois, the uh, heartland. The, <laughs> and when, where are you from? I'm from everywhere. You're from everywhere. Quick, I was born in Kansas, uh-huh. was raised in Jayhawks. grade school in Mississippi and Alabama, okay. went to Lutheran School in Wisconsin, uh-huh. and then high school was San Jose, California, ah. and then moved to New York. Okay. You are from everywhere. That's why it's you're, very hard. You're really hard, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's your understanding, Amy, like of, of Indiana versus Illinois? Do you have... Well, they're neighbors. Well, they're neighbors. I would say, and my very first internship, well, one of my very first internships was actually working for the Indianapolis Star. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the big difference in general between my experience of the two places, and I think in general, is that Illinois has Chicago. Right. So, you know, and if you go anywhere outside of like an hour radius of Chicago, it Mm -hmm. turns into a completely different territory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my view of the Midwest has always been colored by being liberal 
Democrat. There was a machine and mm-hmm. it was corrupt, mm-hmm. but that didn't mean that yeah. the values didn't represent my own. Yeah. And it was as diverse as the Midwest gets, segregated, but diverse mm-hmm. in terms of like you could actually see people of all stripes, ethnicities, different languages being spoken. Indiana's just not like that. Yeah. And, you know, like I remember reporting on stories in, oh, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was like a wheat field a couple, maybe an hour or two north of Indianapolis, where I was just the first Asian person that anybody within miles had ever seen. Wow. And it was a beautiful event. It was a community of farmers had come together because one farmer during harvest time had had an accident Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. couldn't harvest his own crops. And there was something really beautiful about it. The church came together, the community came together, but were there people representing different walks of life there? No. Mm Mm-hmm. They all belonged to the same church. Mm -hmm. They all lived in the same community and they all had the same job. (laughs) Did you find that sort of homogeneity in Kansas when? Well, in Kansas, surprisingly, and this is where, you know, about Syrian refugees and what Pence had said. So back in the 70s and 80s in Kansas, there was a very strong Catholic missionary organization. And because of that, they had sponsored a lot of Vietnamese refugees in which my parents were one of them. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, I think, like 200,000 like Vietnamese people in Wichita, Kansas. Oh, wow. Um, Wait, really? Yes, really. My husband grew up in Wichita, and oh. he never speaks about the Vietnamese community. They're there. Well, it's funny because it, I think people's expectations of Kansas that it's all white, and he's like, no, I'm brown. Who do you think <laughs> cut all your meat? Like, look at all the Mexicans. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So my experience of it is that there are, like, these enclaves of people of color throughout the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, it's it's very white, and it's, there's a very strong point of view. But mm-hmm. what has gotten me about what Pence has said and all this other stuff is, like, okay, he says he's religious, but I and my family really experience what um, living your moral values are with the Catholic missionary groups. Within, I think, Nebraska was very strong in the 70s and 80s. Kansas was, too, mm-hmm. of really opening their arms to people in need. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. I have this. It's more of a comment than a question from Trace, but he makes a good recommendation. I, uh, I'm going to play this for you all now. Hey, this is Trace from Sacramento, California. How's it going? So last episode, you guys were talking about community policing First of all, just a crazy idea that I, I don't think will ever work or actually happen. What if police officers had to live in the areas uh, where they patrol? Like, you can't live, like, way out in the suburbs in a different town, but then work in, you know, a more urban area. You're, you're stationed somewhere, sort of. Again, I don't think that would actually happen, but I do think that would improve relations uh, when you're actually... These people aren't strangers or some people living some different way of life. They're just your neighbors, you know. Um, All right. But more to the point. So in terms of community policing, you guys were talking about um, this idea that some people have that uh, maybe some neighborhoods would be better without police at all. Um, And everyone on the panel sort of agreed they they didn't quite see how that would work. Well, sort of to that point, one of the best books I've read in a long time ever, really, was this book called Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi, who was an L.A. Times homicide reporter. Uh, she was embedded with these these LAPD homicide detectives for, I, I don't even know how long, for years, investigating multiple cases. One of the points that Leovi makes in the book is that these neighborhoods suffer specifically from both over-policing and under-policing. Uh, over-policing in the sense that there's a lot of people who the only time they ever see police is, you know, they're patting down some teenager or 
you know, seem to be harassing someone or something like that. And under policing where the same person will will have, you know, a murder in their neighborhood that just never gets solved or have multiple family members who have been killed, but no one ever goes to jail. Um, and, and so they, the, once the opinion of the, of the law enforcement system, the legal system in general is sort of lowered like that, people don't trust cops. And when that snowballs and, and creates a cycle where once people don't trust cops, it becomes a better option to take matters into your own hands. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> Um, thank you, Trace from Sacramento, which is near where I grew up. <laughs> Fairly diverse, actually, considering uh, the fact that it's in the smack dab in the middle of the Central Valley. So, first of all, his, his recommendation is for Ghetto Side, which I am well aware of, but I've never read. It is sitting on my shelf. It's one of those books that's sitting on my shelf that I've actually never um, spent a lot of time with. And um, I believe Tanner, at least, has recommended the book, and I might, Raquel yeah. may have as well. Yeah. But on the listener's issue of whether it might help if, if police officers lived in the communities that they were are serving and policing what what are your thoughts on that i'm totally for that <laughs> i uh i'm just not to like be lighthearted because i know we're talking about serious things here but i remember when i first moved to new york and i didn't even know where i was going and i would ask a police officer like where was this the nearest subway where was this nearest thing and they looked at me and they're like we're from jersey and mm -hmm. i'm like why are you a new york city police mm -hmm. officer mm -hmm. so that's just like one, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. But if you don't even know where mm -hmm. the nearest subway station is <laughs> in New York City, how can you police yeah. a community? Yeah, totally. How, um, so that's sort of, I think it's a wonderful idea, but I'm sure that the, what, what it's called, the fraternal order of police officers wouldn't right. like that. Um, and I don't know that it could be, I wonder if it could be enforced. Like I wonder. Like a quota? Sure. Or, or whether they're, you know, I, I don't know whether legally police departments could require that members live in a certain area just the way that I don't know you could you could require that of anybody else in another industry or, or occupation Right, because um, you could imagine that that idea would be so relevant and build so much empathy if like public school teachers mm -hmm. had to do the same mm -hmm. thing or any other sort of community or public servant right you actually build a relationship yeah I mean, there are certainly public servants who make the decision to live in the within the communities that they are serving, whether they're teachers or police officers yeah. or, or firefighters. But, you know, look at something like New York City, where I think a significant, I don't want to say all or a lot or most, uh, but a significant percentage of the police officers and firefighters live in Long Island or New Jersey or, or mm -hmm. Staten Island, mm -hmm. which for all intents and purposes are, are suburbs. They're not really the city. I mean, yes, Staten Island is quote unquote part of New York City, but it's not the city. Um, and please don't anyone call in and yell at me about that. But it's because it's true. <laughs> but um yeah, and, and and I think and I think that, you know, then you then you start to have um you know suburban areas that are homogenous in themselves, I mean, mm -hmm. because they tend to be populated by white ethnic police officers or firefighters, and I'm kind of referring to Staten Island. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the Rockaways? The Rockaways, yes, exactly. Queens, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, um, coastal Queens. Coastal Queens. <laughs> <laughs> coastal Queens. Or as someone I, I met recently called it, Archie Bunker Queens. <laughs> uh, well, also, I mean, would that couldn't, I mean, we're talking here about like, uh, presumably, uh, the premise here is urban centers where uh, white police are coming in and mm -hmm. using, uh, you know, communities mm -hmm. of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, police officers also that police wealthy areas, 
they don't make enough money to live there either. So right. How, you know, and what does yeah. it flow in both directions? Right. Like, you know. Right. You know, it's interesting because before we came up here to record, Amy and I were outside the building and there were a number of firefighters who, well, quite quite a few, a couple dozen who showed up. So there's obviously some sort of fire department event going on outside. But the thing about the fire department, at least in New York, is that the majority of of, of the firemen, well, first of all, the majority are men and the majority of those men are, are white, right? I do think mm-hmm. the, the police force is a, is a lot more diverse, at least from what I see and eyeball on the street as I, you know, I'm, I'm interacting or passing by police officers on right. subways or streets. Or, but I think the thing about f- firemen that, that gives them a... a pass and a passport into communities that are so completely different from them is that you mm-hmm. only see firemen in emergency. Right. Right. Like if somebody, if you want to, if you have to put your faith in anybody just to rescue you, if you're in a burning yeah. building, mm-hmm. you take help from where you can. Mm-hmm. And people, they, in general, I don't, I don't want firemen to get mad at me, but they're going to parish it in, fix the situation. And then they, they're out, right. <laughs> they're not part of a community fold in which they're getting right. to know the characters in the neighborhood. They're right. getting to know the specific issues. They're not issues out on the patrol. Right. Right. Exactly. They're there yeah. to help you if your building collapses. Right. Which is very... Or your cat gets stuck up a tree. That true. Very important mm. stuff. Yes. Um, AC, do we have any other reader, yeah. a reader, listener? Listener stuff. You just betrayed your... I know. Your <laughs> <laughs> Part of what we had been discussing in past episodes was the notion of uh, mandatory voting. And how it works in other countries. And fortunately, Mel from Australia gave us this voice memo, which I'm going to play for you all in just a sec. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name's Mel, and I'm sending you this from Australia. I just wanted to respond quickly to your questions about mandatory and preferential voting that were raised in the podcasting from Donald Trump's Hell B-Side episode. Um, First off, uh, you were correct. The penalty for not voting is a fine. Uh, But if you don't pay, you can be taken to court and have a criminal conviction recorded against your name. Uh, Unfortunately, um, mandatory voting does not mean that you are necessarily more educated about politics or even that you actually have to uh, vote. Uh, What it really means is that you have to turn up at a polling place and have your name marked off. And whether you actually fill out the ballot paper correctly is up to you. Most people do. Uh, Only about 5% of votes cast in our recent federal election were informal. Um, That's still quite a lot of people. Uh, second, I wanted to comment a little on the polit- on political education in Australia, um, though I can obviously only speak about my own experience. Uh, I had a fairly typical public education, and as far as politics go, we really only got a basic rundown of things like how a bill becomes law and things like that. In fact, in my final year of high school, um, the single politics subject was actually cancelled because of a lack of interest. Australia also has a really terrible history as far as things um, like race are concerned, and it is only now that I am in university that I'm actually learning about much of the details of this in a class setting. My sister is currently in her last year of high school and it seems that her experience is quite similar and uh, she's almost a decade younger than I am so it doesn't seem like things have changed that much. So just because voting is mandatory that doesn't mean that people are automatically more educated or um, or more invested in politics. Um, I hope this perspective was useful and I'm glad if I could add to this conversation in any way. Keep up the good work. I'm loving this podcast and look forward to many more episodes to come. Bye. All right. Well, there you have it. An Australian who says that mandatory voting does not necessarily mean a more educated uh, populace. Do you guys have thoughts about mandatory voting? I have. Yes. Oh, okay. Amy. Oh, I think that people who must be required, Mm -hmm. not encouraged, not reached out to, not doing the incredible work that you do of reaching Mm -hmm. out to specific communities that haven't been felt part of a process before, but forced to vote Mm -hmm. 
I, I think it's bullshit because why not? Like, it's one thing if you opt out of a process or if you don't know that the process exists and how it works. It's another thing if you can't be bothered to fucking vote. Mm -hmm. It actually drives me crazy. What I do think would be incredibly valuable in our country is mandatory service. Okay. Not military service necessarily, Mm -hmm. but some sort of public service. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a year or two years of doing some sort of like Teach for America program Mm -hmm. or any myriad kinds of community activities that can happen to to get young people, whether it's like the year that's instituted and becomes socially acceptable to do between high school and college or after college, everybody does their year. You know, it's like not a mandatory military service, but a mandatory public service that everybody does. And I can't imagine that that doesn't get you more engaged in your community, more engaged in political life, more engaged in the issues that are important to you as a person that then you can act on. Mandatory voting to me doesn't make sense because I'm like, well, do you want, just as that listener said, (laughs) people who are like, well, yeah, I'll go and I'll check off the box. I'm not actually going to cast a ballot. I'm just going to show up. Right. That's That's even more offensive. Yes. You were there and you're like, eh, I can't be bothered. I don't think the answer is mandatory voting. I think the answer is easier voting. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about it, on a random Tuesday, a work day, 300 million Americans need to show up at a polling place that is only staffed by volunteers. And yeah. they have to line up and fill out this piece of paper. I mean, you know, there's some great programs out there just to register to vote, trying to, like, text to register, like, Make it easy. Mm-hmm. And once you make it easy, then you will get the participation that makes sense. The American Idol level participation. <laughs> well, it's in a lot of, well, in particular, one political party's interest to not make it easy. In fact, oh. to make it as difficult right. as they possibly can. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Ari Berman. And I think we're going to try and have Ari on the show at some point in the next couple of weeks, right, AC? <laughs> Before the election. But, you know, he's written extensively about the Republican Party's numerous efforts in various states and municipalities to restrict the voting rights of of mostly people of color because it is in the Republican Party's best interest to do just that. It, it was funny. What fucking assholes? It's just like, let's just add that to the list. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because right now, actually, just coming in today and I was looking at, at Twitter before we started and looking at the news of the morning, which is more about how craven the GOP is with regards to Trump and excusing his yeah. behavior. I can't, I just I can't even. On that note, we'll do what one more. We'll do one more, and this okay. is uh, one I'm eager to leave off on because we have another all woman panel this week, which is something to celebrate. But we also got this note from Lara. I'm listening to show number sixteen thirty eight a little late, and I had a comment about the first segment on the coverage of the current presidential race. None of you mentioned the historic nature of this election. We're about to hopefully all fingers and toes crossed, knocking on wood furiously. Elect our first woman president, and that's amazing. I'm really proud that the last two candidates the Democrats have nominated have been from groups historically marginalized and oppressed. It's going to be hard to back a white man as the nominee, regardless of his politics. Cheers, Lara. <laughs> I guess we didn't mention that. You know, it's funny because that the fact of that, the fact that we may, hopefully, fingers and toes crossed, elect the first female president of the United States is something that's that actually has been in the background for me throughout the the election me cycle too. especially lately because I'm so horrified by what is going on that it, that that I'm almost forgetting <laughs> that that's what we're working towards and probably will get I do think she'll win that said I think a lot of 
the ugliness that we're seeing and have 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 been seeing is related to the fact that the Democratic nominee is a woman. So it's interesting, at least for me, in the ways in which that seems to be both in the background, but yet fueling or, or behind a lot of the things that are happening that are upsetting me so much. It's been at the, I think, at the forefront mm-hmm. of my mind throughout mm-hmm. this whole cycle. I mean, the, I remember the night of her nomination, she, um, her campaign posted a picture of Secretary Clinton dancing with a young girl. Like, I think it yeah. was maybe like that. And I would just wept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wept. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, like our kids, they're only ever going to know a black president. God willing, a woman president. Yeah. Those will be the first two presidents. And that's amazing. And then maybe a black woman president. And then maybe a black woman. <laughs> Kamala Harris. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, thanks for the emails and the voice memos. Keep them coming. Our email address, as always, is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Refresh your podcast app because the main episode is dropping very, very soon. 